Welcome to the Scott Ross Discipleship Podcast. Scott has been discipling men and women for more than 20 years and is passionate about helping you grow into the full measure of the maturity of Christ. Grab your Bible, something to write with, and your favorite warm beverage, and let's listen as Scott takes us deeper in our walk with God. Okay, so we've been studying uh, pneumatology, doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and today we're going to get to uh, some of the more, I guess you could call it, juicy aspects of this discussion, the stuff that most people think about when they think about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in our modern world. And uh, we're going to be discussing one of the two great historical controversies, if you will, surrounding the Holy Spirit. And uh, this is one of the things that was on your checklist uh, that you wanted to make sure that we cover. And it is the, um, you know, kind of generically referenced as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What is the, what is meant by the idea of baptism of the Holy Spirit? Uh, what does the baptism of the Holy Spirit entail? How does one know that they have been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And what's the, the outcome or the result of baptism of the Holy Spirit? Now, um, does anybody have any thoughts initially when you see this phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit? Um, I, I can't recall actually, and I could be wrong, but I can't recall actually seeing that phrase in the Bible. Is it in the Bible? I don't know. We'll find out. <laughs> no. you got to memorize that. It's a good question. We're going to find out, is this phrase actually in Scripture? Probably we'll find out today. We'll see how it goes. Yes, ma'am. Isn't it more like the feeling? Okay. F-I-L-L. The feeling? Yes. As when Christ was baptized and the Spirit came down upon him. So in essence, he gets filled. It's good. It's really good. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's good. What does any when does anything controversial come to mind when you see this idea? Absolutely. Speaking in tongues? Has anybody ever heard that associated with baptism of the Holy Spirit? Wanted to know what's going on there? Yes, Matt. Wow. Well, I've been pushed over too. Uh, I don't know that the person who pushed me was thinking it was part of the Holy Spirit, but you know, maybe. But yes, I get it. My question about it, is it separate from baptism? Okay, good. Secondary work. Secondary work. John baptized you with water, but I will baptize you with fire. So we may have, if we've been around Christian circles for a while, heard this issue of that Allison kind of alluded to um, of is is the baptism when when does the baptism of the Holy Spirit take place, right? kind of chronologically in the life of going from a non-believer to I'm in heaven. Like, where does that take place? And 
how would I know and what, what occurs when that happens, right? Um, I think those are some of the questions. Now, anybody else I want to cut off the discussion of what, what comes to mind when you see that phrase and questions that come to mind that, you know, you think about right away? Yes, ma'am? It's not always immediate. No? Okay. Healing. Hmm? Healing. Healing, okay. So the gifts of the Spirit, is that, that's a reference to the gifts of the Spirit, right? And there are what are, we'll talk about the gifts of the Spirit in, at length, actually, in a little later in the study, but we will talk about them in relation to this topic. But just as a heads up, there are now what are referred to as the miraculous gifts versus the non-miraculous gifts. And this is a modern designation that's in response to stuff that's happened in the last century or so with relationship to this doctrine. And healing would be one of those miraculous gifts. It just makes me think of, like Matt was mentioned, and I grew up in a Hispanic country, so this is mm-hmm. fairly common. Um, but it's, it's used as a, a, a rationalization, a way to rationalize uh, Scam behavior. Okay. Well, we're going to have a session next week where we blow on people and just see what happens. <laughs> so, you know, that might get us a lot more attendance. I don't know. Y'all might put the word out about that. The cynic in me always I got it. So, but let me ask you this because I'm, I'm not arguing with you. I totally agree and get what you're saying. Is it possible? for someone to fake something and yet the thing they're faking still be a real thing that can happen. Yes. It is possible, right? Okay. Anybody else? Did you have your hand up? Anybody? Oh, Ray, you had your hand up. For me, the, the Holy Spirit is the most misunderstood of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a clear picture of God the Father, God the Son, it's a little sketchy on the Holy Spirit. It's good. I appreciate you confessing that, Ray. I think that many Christians are in that boat. In fact, we started off the very beginning of our study talking a little bit about that, that the Holy Spirit is less understood, the least understood member of the Trinity. I honestly didn't know there were multiple names for the Holy Spirit mm. until he taught that class. Like, oh. It's good. Okay, so let's just um, start off by saying that the controversy, if you want to call it that, the, the debate over this idea didn't exist until about 120 years ago. And it rose out of the advent of something we now call Pentecostalism. So, I want to give you just a brief history of Pentecostalism. These are just very high points um, to tell you kind of what happened. Now, when I say that the the controversy arose about 120 years ago, 
That's not to say that amongst the different traditions, Orthodox, Catholic, and even the various uh, flavors of Protestantism prior to 1900, there weren't nuances in understanding the Holy Spirit, because there definitely were. And we're going to talk about that too. But in terms of this notion of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and this clear delineation between, uh, you know, it means this versus this, which I'm, I'm going to get to it in a second, it, it rose out of this particular set of events. So um, in 1900, a guy named Charles Parham founded a college called Bethel Bible College in Topeka, Kansas. Now, Charles Parham was um, not an ordained minister or didn't really have any um, official education in theology, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. I'm just pointing out to you that he just was, um, he had come from a, a Christian home and he founds this Bible college and he starts kind of alluding to or giving teachings that suggest that the Holy Spirit must be asked for subsequent to salvation. That you don't receive the Holy Spirit upon salvation, but you have to pray to receive the Holy Spirit subsequent to, to salvation. And in 1901, on January 1st, they had been having this, this set of prayer meetings, and he had asked his students to go to the Scripture and see what the Scripture says about how to receive the Holy Spirit and what it would look like if you had received the Holy Spirit. So the students are having these kind of round-the-clock prayer meetings. And this woman named, or young woman named Agnes Osman became the first student to publicly, she comes forward and she starts praying and asking for everybody to pray that she received the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And the reports are that at that time, she began to act very ecstatic and began to speak in another language. And they believed it was an actual language, but they called it speaking in tongues. But they believed she was speaking a real foreign language, the people sitting in the room, even though they didn't know what the language was. But they believed it was a real foreign language, not a prayer language or something like we might associate with some charismatic um, prayer today. So, um, fast forward, Parham um, starts bouncing around uh, teaching this notion of praying to receive the Holy Spirit. And in 1906, he set up a Bible school in Houston, Texas. And a man named William Seymour began attending his school. And he started adopting the same teaching. Well, um, Parham had sent a woman to L.A. as an outreach. And ultimately, Seymour decided to go out and join and began to preach in Los Angeles. And um, he began to preach this same message of baptism of the Holy Spirit um, as a secondary work that comes after salvation and taught that it was evidenced by speaking in tongues. Now, um, the problem was he personally did not speak in tongues. And so he started getting barred from preaching that that was the truth since he himself could not show evidence of that in his own life. 
Well, on April 9th, 1906, at 216 North Bonnie Bray Street, you can go there and see a historical marker today in the city of Los Angeles. It was the home of Richard and Ruth Asbury because no church would allow Seymour to preach there. They started preaching in the Asbury's home. And after five weeks of preaching, they began this 10-day fast. And on the third day of the fast, one of the attendees named Richard Lee began to speak in tongues. Again, everyone there believed it was an actual language he was speaking. Then, on April 10th, the next day, Seymour preached on Acts 2-4. He told everybody what had happened to Lee the night before, and six more people that night began to speak in tongues. Well, Seymour himself was a little dismayed that he was not yet in the fold of these people who had received the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So he stays up praying basically all night, and on April 12th, he himself prayed in tongues for the first time. At that point, the news starts spreading that something crazy is going on at Bonnie Bray Street in Los Angeles. And people are coming to see what's going on. And more and more people are speaking in tongues. More and more people are kind of having crazy experiences happening to them inside this house. Um, there's rumors of healings happening. And people start packing the house. Well, at that point, their front porch collapsed one night because there were so many people trying to get into the house. So they decided they needed a new place to meet and they found an abandoned warehouse, which just coincidentally happened to have originally been built to be an African Methodist Episcopal church. I love how there's we put all the all the designations there, right? Like we are Frisco, blah blah blah. Anyway, um, anyway, but it was a, it had been an abandoned warehouse. In fact, it had been used to store horses at its most recent time. And there was still quite a stench, apparently, of horse manure in the building. And the people who came there had to deal with horse flies all the time. It was a constant nuisance to them. But this was at 312 Azusa Street. And if you have been a Christian for long, you know the phrase Azusa Street because this is a very famous thing that happened. It was a super impoverished section of downtown Los Angeles, but it began to attract people of every walk of life, wealthy people, every race, every creed. And again, more and more, by the hundreds, these ecstatic experiences are happening. People are praying in tongues. People are supposedly being healed. And people start coming from all over the country and for ultimately around the world to Azusa Street. Um, and by the way, it was called the Apostolic Faith Mission. And uh, it became known to this day as the Azusa Street Revival. And um, worship was spontaneous. I use that term very uh, loosely because it was happening 24 hours a day. It never ended. It never closed their doors. People just would come in there. Prayer was happening 24 hours a day. People would stand up and spontaneously preach. People would stand up and spontaneously start singing songs. Um, but 24 hours a day, this thing was happening. Well, ultimately, they ended up sending people out from Azusa Street to all over the world, and they started planning churches that would teach this idea that you had to pray to receive the Holy Spirit, that you would know you had received it when you spoke in tongues, and that miraculous signs and wonders would accompany these phenomenon or that, that occurrence. And so that was when, quote, Pentecostalism was born.
And it is from there that the rest of Christendom has been responding to what Pentecostalism teaches in terms of the view on the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a secondary work and as evidenced by speaking in tongues. Prior to this, that teaching and that controversy had never existed in church history. So, any questions just about the history of, of what happened? Is there a book that you've read? That There's quite a few, actually, yes. If, if there's one that you yeah, I'll, 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 I'll post something to Telegram. Yeah. yeah. I have a lot of thoughts about that. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to ask. Mm -hmm. Can you go back one slide? Okay, I'm afraid it's going to build, so just bear with it. But yeah. Uh, the one that starts the, uh, before that. Okay. Yeah. So. Are there, is there any other incidents of this happening outside of the Osman Parham kind of uh, 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 traced uh, <laughs> lineage, if you will? Mm -hmm. If you will. Mm -hmm. Because and I know this is my own personal bias coming out, like I have a major serious problem with Pentecostals. Mm -hmm. like major, major. Okay. That I have to, it's, it's a stumbling block for me because I get very angry. Okay. Uh, but it just almost, it almost seems like this whole concept of the, 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 this reassessment or reinterpretation of doctrine comes from one or two people and then it just basically stayed with them and the people that they talked to and essentially the source was just from an, an individual person who then started spreading it out hmm. as opposed to this happening in multiple different locations independently or mm -hmm. so I, I just yeah so the answer to your question is um, not that we know of. I mean, I'm sure it could have happened, but it all traces to here. And, and, and ultimately, by the way, Parm and Seymour started having very, it, this started to splinter very rapidly. And it's why there's, uh, there ultimately became Pentecostalism and Charismaticism, um, which we'll talk about. But Parm and Seymour ended up having a, a major falling out. And uh, uh, Parham was supposed to travel to Azusa Street as a guest speaker, and um, Seymour told him he couldn't come. And so Parham continues to teach the same doctrine, and churches begin to splinter off from that. And of course, you had people coming from other parts of the world, and all they would do is come there. It was like, uh, I mean, no pun intended, it was literally like catching a flame. It's like you come take a candle and light it, and you would go back to where you were from and just start teaching the same thing. There wasn't really like this super fleshed out doctrine that was happening yet. Now that, that, now that has taken place. The, the Pentecostal doctrine and charismatic doctrine is really fleshed out. I mean, there's entire systematic theologies today. Um, there's entire schools uh, dedicated and you know theological institutions dedicated to the doctrine today. But at this point, it was just the phenomenon of 
what was happening miraculously. And by the way, another aspect of this, and I don't mean this to be, um, I'm going to be really fair as I go through this, or I'm going to try to be, as I go through the various uh, viewpoints on this doctrine. Um, and then I, at the end, I'll kind of give you some thoughts of how to evaluate everything we're going to look at. But um, I don't mean this to be unfair to Pentecostalism, but their students began writing in tongues. And um, they believed they were... It was this miracle thing happening for the missions field that you would not have to learn a language. And people started coming to Azusa Street and to Parham uh, schools and to other schools that sprouted from this to learn to do this, to receive the Holy Spirit, and then you wouldn't need to know, like, learn Spanish or learn Russian or whatever. Sorry, let me just finish this thought. Well, subsequently, we now have those writings. None of them were actual languages. It was all just gibberish. Um, just FYI, so for the record. So, but I just, yeah. I, I just want to make sure that we're not like, are we are we supposed to take Pentecostalism as seriously? Like, should we treat it with the seriousness? I think so. I think we have to. Or do we do we treat it as we would approach, say? Mormonism, or you know, well, definitely. Like so, so definitely, Pentecostalism is within Orthodoxy. So, if you go back, I don't know if you were here for our discussions about essential doctrines and non-essential doctrines, but it's very important that we remember that discussion here, because there are essential doctrines upon which we cannot divide. Cannot divide. It's like it's like inside the circle. You're a Christian. Outside the circle, you're not a Christian. Inside the circle is the essential doctrines. This is not one of them, the, doc- the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's something that can be divided over, and it's out here where it's non-essential. You can still be a Christian. So I would absolutely not put it in the category of Mormonism. However, I think it is something you take very seriously in terms of if you want to understand and be doctrinally accurate. Um, and at a minimum, if you disagree, you need to know why and what the doc- what scripture and what the church has said is the faith handed down once for all to the saints. So, uh, yes, ma'am. I have a question. Yes. And I missed that lesson about mm-hmm. the doctrines. So uh, hopefully it's not uh, stupid. No, there's no stupid question. Uh, referring to Acts one. Uh-huh. When Christ tells the disciples to stay at a particular place until the Holy Spirit comes. Mm-hmm. And so I'm in somewhat of a quandary mm-hmm. because it seems that those people mm-hmm. were in effort trying to receive the Holy Spirit. Sure. And, and so, absolutely. I miss that very important lesson, so yeah, no. kind of hanging out there. No, it's a good, I think I understand your question. If I don't, come back and ask it again. But let me make sure I'm clear in what I'm saying. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit that we're learning in total is an essential doctrine, that the Holy Spirit is God, is a person, is the third member of the Trinity. That's essential. If you deny the Holy Spirit, is God, you're outside the boundary of what we would say is Orthodox Christianity. What is non-essential is if, I'm going to just say, person A says that you receive the Holy Spirit 
for instance, at the moment of salvation when you trust in Christ. And person B says you receive the Holy Spirit, you accept Christ, then you pray to receive the Holy Spirit, and then you subsequently receive the Holy Spirit. That's something that two Orthodox Christians can disagree on and still be brothers or sisters in Christ. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yes. And we're going to get into the Acts uh, passages, by the way. So I just want to make sure everybody's clear. I'm not putting down Pentecostalism, elevating Pentecostalism. I'm showing you the advent of this controversy happened here. This is where we had, for the first time in history, a little splintering off of Protestantism and the rest of, of the church, the rest of Christian, Christendom, to say there's this other thing that can be believed. Thanks for listening. We pray this has been edifying. If you've enjoyed the show, please give us a shout out on your favorite social media platform. Scott's username on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is Scott Ross Online. That's Scott Ross Online, all one word. Also, please remember to go to scottrossonline.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, and discuss what you've learned with others. Until next time, continue to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. God bless you.